0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest installment of For What It's Worth. Wow, we are a pandemic Wednesday. Today, uh, I just got off another two-hour phone call. I've got another one later. I spend most of my time now on the phone. Hundreds and hundreds of calls. I also just made a 16 by 20 print from four pieces of artwork, acrylic on paper, that I made during the eclipse in 2017. And I made these because I did a blur book. I went back to where the ranch I grew up on in Wyoming, the, the eclipse passed over it, the totality zone passed over it, I went back, did a project, um, very kind of fun project that I just did for myself, but I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned. Maybe I'll add that in as a point down below. I think that's that could be good. It was called Glimpse. Let me add that in as a as a project here. Of course, I can spell Glimpse. Okay, for those of you out there who just stumbled upon me and you're thinking, who is this clown, uh, and why should I listen to his idiotic podcast? Well, that's, those are Those are two good questions. I'm not sure I have a good answer for you, but I think I know the kind of people that 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 come here for this. And I think for those of you who always get out of the car no matter what the park ranger is telling you, this podcast is for you. Could be a grizzly there, a buffalo, another killer beast of some sort. For those of you who defy logic and park regulations, welcome aboard. This podcast is for you. I'm in the front room right now. My wife is out of the house for a couple of hours. And if you know my wife, some of you do. She's the original murder hornet, right? She is a handful. And when she's gone, it's like a blanket of warmth and quiet settles over the house. So I moved out of my dungeon into the front room. I can hear the wind chimes. It's spring in New Mexico. and We've got wind almost every day. So anyway, just wanted to get to this for you. Before we go any further, there's a weird sentiment out there that I'm finding right now, and I, wouldn't, I don't mean this is weird in a bad way, it's just weird in its own way, is that I never looked at my life, and maybe this is a product of my socioeconomic background, I came from what I would call an upper middle class family, we lived in an area that I would call affluent, although there were plenty of people around us that were far more affluent than us including our next-door neighbor who's probably a legit billionaire. You would never know it. He's salt of the earth, give you the shirt off his back, drove the same car for 25 years kind of thing. Um, but lots of, lots of folks with money. But I, I was able at a young age to kind of look around and say, this isn't really normal, right? My lifestyle is not real normal, and I have been given the golden ticket. I've been given the opportunity of a lifetime to kind of do whatever I want to do. And by that, I mean try to be whatever I want to be. My parents didn't say, you have to do this or you have to do that. Neither of my parents graduated from college. My father got thrown out of four four four-year universities, believe it or not. I think those include Indiana University, Ohio State, Bowling Green, and another one I can't remember. He also—this was post-military school, so they tried to control him with military school. That didn't work, and he got thrown out of three colleges. So not an epic student, if you will. Neither was my mother. My brother survived, got a degree. My sister got a degree. But for us to get degrees was a huge deal to my parents. It was more of a deal to them than it was to us. And I learned how to work from a young age. My father taught me how to work. And then also my father's ranch partner, who I'd spent a lot of time with during the summers, was kind of a ball buster. And we were all terrified of him. And he made us work. And so we, I learned how to work, not to sit down on the job. You know, all the, all the standard cliche kinds of things. But I looked at the world as something that I was supposed to participate in, but I never felt like anybody owed me anything. I, nobody owes me anything. If I need something, I, I go in, and work for it. I try to figure out a way to get it. I don't think I deserve anything for being who I am or where I came from or the college degree that I have or the work that I put in. Nobody owes me anything, and I don't necessarily deserve anything either. I think the two things that are that are sort of running parallel in my life all the time, and not all the time. I'm definitely not perfect. I have my moments of complete and utter disaster. I've had plenty of them. Did I mention the times I went to jail? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Nothing stuck. You know, that's what a good lawyer will do. I'm exaggerating a bit, but I but I have been arrested, which I think everyone should go through. It's fascinating, by the way. And by the way, the cops wanted a bribe. So yeah, there's that to talk about at some point. But anyway, hard work and staying positive. Those are two things that I don't think there's any way around, but also those are the two, some of the, or two of the most fun, entertaining aspects of being alive is working hard and staying positive, especially in a time like now we're in the middle of a global pandemic. May want to just take a different perspective. I also try to keep learning. And lastly, I never take myself too seriously. There's so many people, especially in the photography space. Oh my God. Over the years, geez, the ego and insecurity in the photography world. And I'm sure... It's true of all the creative fields, and, and a part of me gets it because when you're a photographer or you're a painter or you're an artist or you're a writer, everybody judges you relentlessly all the time. Whatever your latest photograph is, you're judged, and people try to set you by that whatever, and everybody's taking pot shots at you the whole time, so I get it, but I try not to take myself too seriously. I take my work seriously from time to time depending on what I'm working on but I try not to, and I try to be truthful. So I can look at you with a straight face through this electronic contraption that we're using right now, and I can, I can say, was I ever a great photographer? No. I can say that with 100% conviction and truth. I was never a great photographer. I was okay. I made some decent pictures over the years, but I was never great. I mean, I hold that word in reserve for the people who actually are, and I would never get there. So I just wanted to lead, lead with that point before we get to our hero of the week. And the hero of the week is ma- one of the best heroes we've ever had. I do not know what happened to him in the long run. If I had the, uh, if I had the journalistic prowess and a, and a level of quality that was much higher than what I currently have, I would have done some research. But I'm just going to feed you this person through my personal and family experience in our relationship with him. And the hero of the week— and for those of you my age and older, I guarantee if you live in the United States, you're going to know this guy. The hero of the week is Marlon Perkins. And Marlon Perkins, for those of you who don't know, used to ha- host a television show way back in the day. So probably 60s and 70s was when this show was on called Wild Kingdom. And Marlon Perkins was an old Caucasian man in a suit, mostly navy blue, with a pointer of a map of the world. And he would stand in like the Wild Kingdom corporate headquarters in the library, very staunch, very stoic. And he would use the wooden pointer and he would point to something on the map. And then they would, through high-tech wizardry of the time, you would suddenly emerge in that place on the map. And Marlin was my first exposure to the African wilds. He was my first exposure to African wildlife. He was my first exposure to African people. Uh, It was simultaneously hilarious. We didn't think it was hilarious at the time. We thought it was revolutionary and unbelievable, right? But the the reason I'm telling you this is my personal and family history through this is 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 pretty funny. So, my father did not like Marlon Perkins for whatever reason. And my dad, by the way, was had a lot of things he didn't like. And I used to get him so riled up and And my dad was not a violent guy. He never hit us. you know, he spanked us as kids and stuff. We came from that that uh, par- parenting discipline, which I have absolutely no problem with. It didn't It didn't ruin my brother and sister and I. I never liked getting spanked, but I knew it was inevitable. And so Dad, I could get Dad riled up, and I would do it on purpose, just to just to get him to the breaking point where I could look at him and you could see that he was contemplating prison versus letting me live kind of thing it was always right on that line and I would say things that were just horribly inappropriate because I knew that if I caught him at the right time he would snap you know I'd say like hey you old dusty old fart why don't you go make me something to eat you know something along those lines and you know he you could just see the the pressure valve building and the the color and the face changing and I'd be like oh I got him and then I'd be like you know, you could do something about it if you weren't so fat and knew that I would outrun you. And of course, that would just, you know, you could just see the seething and the, it was like a pot on the boil. So anyway, dad hated Marlon Perkins for whatever reason, and he called him the old fool. So when I was really small, like first grade, second grade, We were living in Indiana, and we had, like, I forget what day of the week it was, but we had, like, official bath night, you know, where all of us kids had to take a bath. It was probably more than once a week, but I just remember it being once a week. We were, like, feral little country kids, filthy all the time. And um, my mom would—we'd take baths, and then she would make popcorn and orange juice, and we would sit at the kitchen table with a black-and-white television screen that was probably eight inches wide— and we would watch wild kingdom and it was huge for me it was like holy cow there here's the rest of the world coming through this black and white screen and my dad would wander in and he'd say oh jesus what's the old fool up to and then leave in disgust and either go like you know clean a shotgun or or god knows what my dad was doing at that point i mean what was there to do he was killing small game i don't know there was no tv we lived in the country he'd never listened to the radio he didn't like music He probably was reading some spy novel or something, or cleaning a shotgun, whatever. Both incredibly good uses of your time. But let me explain to you Marlon Perkins. So Marlon had the show Wild Kingdom, and Marlon had a sidekick named Jim. And Jim was a Caucasian guy probably in his 40s. And Jim was the real wrangler on Wild Kingdom, right? So Marlon would be chilling on a blanket having tea with some locals and Jim would be literally getting his ass kicked in the field by like a crocodile would be like ripping off a limb or a rhino would be like jumping up and down on Jim and you you know they'd go from Jim getting his ass kicked by the African wildlife and then they'd they'd cut to B-roll and it was Marlon on in his three-piece suit on a blanket having tea. Now I never really thought anything odd about that until I was much older and much wiser. And then I was watching this show one day. And it was sort of the tail end of my relationship with Marlon and Wild Kingdom and Jim. I felt like we were brothers. We were simpatico. But as I got older, I was like, I see some fractures. I see some cracks in this relationship. Because the last time I ever watched Wild Kingdom was there was an episode where Jim, and I guess Marlon was the wrangler behind this, um, they decided in their infinite wisdom— to drive a road grader into a pond full of hippos. Now, on the surface, you might think, "God, that's a great idea and a really good use of time and probably pretty exciting and I'm sure it will make great TV." And then you're like, "Well, we got to get one of these hippos for whatever reason. I don't know why. Why do? You, why does anyone need a hippo?" But so you decide to dart it. Right? You're gonna you're gonna get a crossbow and you're gonna stand on the road grader and then you're gonna Doop, you're gonna dart this rhino, which they do. But then you know I'm no. I'm no doctor, I'm no animal, I'm no veterinarian, and I'm no uh, expert in the natural world in any way, shape, or form. But my first thought would be, well, if you dart a rhino in a pond, it's probably going to drown, right? That would be my first guess. Now, Jim, of course, he's probably got an arrow in his chest by now. He's got an anaconda around one leg. He's got malaria. He's got gangrene. It doesn't matter. He's unstoppable. He's on top of this road grader. And he just darted this, you know, thousand-pound hippo. And then I think they probably came to the same conclusion, which is like, you know, we probably should have waited for the hippo to get out of the water before we darted him. And so then they have to try to use the road grader as a road grader and grade this hippo out of, out of the water onto the dry earth like a whale in Southern California. And it was at that point that I was like, I think I need to move on from Wild Kingdom. I think there's something else out there calling me that could be a little more in line with my my view of the world, but Marlon is our hero because I honestly think like for me, and I'm spoofing them a little bit as you can tell. But they did introduce a lot of people to the idea of wild game, Africa, different cultures, etc. and it was filtered through the era of the 60s and 70s, which obviously was, you know, the pinnacle of human civilization there have been no advancements since that time but the point is they did what they were supposed to do so if you haven't seen reruns of wild kingdom jesus go to the dispensary get the strongest most potent uh marijuana you can possibly find and go watch wild kingdom that would be my 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 uh advice to you. Okay, let's move on a little bit. So what did we have so far? Who this podcast was for? World doesn't owe me anything. Our hero was Merlin Perkins and Jim. I don't know what happened to either one of these guys. If you find out what happened to them, report back to me, please, because I am actually very curious. Okay, we're going to move on. I've got a bunch of points this week. The first point is I can no longer look at Twitter. And, And I'm telling you this because I'm in big trouble. Twitter is the only social network I have left. And six years ago, when I deleted seven social networks, Instagram, Facebook, Tumblr, Pinterest, and some I can't remember, I was going to delete Twitter. And six years ago, Blurb said, hey, th- do us a favor, don't delete that one. Because at the time, six years ago, Twitter was probably, uh, maybe it was their most viable network. I don't know. And I, I didn't want to be a jerk. I said, okay, I'll keep it. And I have. I kept it. And I don't pay attention to it. Uh, Occasionally, I'll post something. If Blurb does something, I'll retweet it for them. But I, I actually think that Twitter, in some ways, is probably the most effective network, depending on what it is you're doing. I just, as you know, I don't like these things. I don't like what they do to my brain. I'm not interested in that style of life, et cetera. I don't want to be anywhere near it. But what happened is Twitter changed for me when the pandemic started. And this is what drives me insane and why I can't look at it. So back went so this is this is a point that gets completely lost on people. I was on Facebook and Instagram before any of my friends. Let me repeat that. I was on Facebook and Instagram before any of my friends were, including all of the people who now swear that the, their entire existence to these networks. I went to New York City, I met someone who was on the Central Park committee I was going to do an assignment for them. I had a meeting with them in New York, and they said, um, blah, 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 Facebook. And I and I was like, what's that? And this woman said, oh, it's this new thing online. you got to look at it. So I flew back to California. I saw Facebook. I created an account. No one I knew was on it. No, nobody in my family, none of my friends. My wife wasn't on it. No one even knew what it was. So I created this uh, this account, and Facebook at the time was what I would call innocent. It was just hey, I'm in California having a burrito. You know, it was kind of like Twitter at the same time. I've learned about Twitter in Amsterdam in 2000, I want to say 2007. And I was at a really cool festival in Amsterdam, which is redundant because they're all cool because they're Dutch and they're way more advanced than we are. They're better than us. We're scum. We're we're the low life and they're they're sophisticated. They ride bikes. And I'm sitting there with the founder of Blurb and someone's like, blah, 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 Twitter. And we look at each other and we're like, what? What's Twitter? And that's how I learned about Twitter. So I started on there. I started on Facebook. I was walking down the street in San Francisco when a friend called me and said, hey, there's a brand new network called Instagram and Milner, you should really sign up. I remember where I was on the street in San Francisco when I signed up for Instagram. Again, nobody that I knew was on there. So over the years, what happens is these networks gain in popularity. And what happens is certain people become messiahs. And I I do not use that word lightly. They become messiahs for the network, even though they're not paid paid by the network at all. They've just gone so in on the network. They're all in. They've just lost all common knowledge, decency, common sense, and they're all in. And what they do is they try to get everyone else on the network because they've figured out some way – to either profit or strategize or build a community, and it's completely awful and phony, and most everybody knows it's happening when they're doing this, but at the same time, you're like, Jesus, dude, give it a break. Like, don't keep telling everyone. And at the same time, they'll profess allegiance to the networks. They'll profess how unbelievable the networks are, and they'll also profess about them eliminating any other way of communicating. I'm getting rid of my email. I'm getting rid of my websites. I'm getting rid of my newsletter. I'm getting rid of everything else I'm doing, and it's all in. This is the only thing. And a hundred percent of the time, within a couple of years after realizing what their life is going to look like if they are to commit like at this level to these networks, what how awful their life is going to be, they start to crack, right? And I've been seeing this over the last six years, and they crack. And the first thing they do is they try to figure out a way to game people to go back in the other direction. They, they act as if they've had a revelation. They start to question the validity of the networks, question the health and lifestyle of the networks. And they go, hey, I'm thinking about doing X, Y, and Z. I'm thinking about starting up a website again or whatever it is. And you're like, oh no. And then they try to get everybody to follow them in that direction. So when the pandemic hits, these were the first people who fell to pieces. They literally fell apart to the degree where they were within two days of quarantine, they're on Twitter asking for help. You know, oh my God, I'm not doing well. What are you guys doing? Or they'll do some generic request or or ask, right? Like it's Tuesday night, I'm thinking of whatever, having a beer, what kind of beer are you drinking? And you're like, no. And I think what it did was, it proved to me what I've been thinking all along and what I've been talking about all along is an online connection is not a connection. It's not real, it's online. If you and I are, if you're in my living room right now and we're sitting here, yeah, I'm connected to you whether I want to be or not because you're sitting here, it's confrontational. This online nonsense, and Twitter is the perfect example, I literally cannot look at it because my feed is filled with these people who are so desperate and needy now because their quote unquote online connections went away. And they're at home alone in the dark, realizing, okay, maybe this is not a real community. Maybe this is just something else. And I can't, I can't play along anymore. I can't even look at it. It just makes me cringe and kind of feel bad for humanity. So, don't tweet, don't DM me on Twitter because I'm never going to see it. Okay. Point number two is about patience. Uh, patience is a virtue. Cliche alert. Yeah. Okay. I'm guilty. Got me. So. I talked to my mom earlier, and my mom is batshit crazy. Let's just get that out of the, out of the way right now. My mom will say things like, I'm going to move. And then three minutes later, we'll say, I'm never leaving where I'm at right now. This is just par for the course. This happens every day. I talk to my mom every day now. So I told her when this pandemic started, and she lives alone, I said, you got to put your patient's hat on because we're probably looking at a year of distancing, isolation, And then things ain't going back to normal for a long time, right? And for those of you out there who say everything's under control, everything's normal, this is no big deal, I'm just looking at my work life. When's the next time I'm gonna get on a plane for Blurb? I can't see that happening this year. I don't imagine that's gonna happen this year. I don't wanna get on a plane. And not with my respiratory history, holy cow, that's a whole nother story. I just had to do a two-hour medical conference with a, with a doctor here going through my medical history. It's a minefield. It's basically—you remember in alien when the thing comes out of the guy's body? That's been like my life since six six months old. So when I saw alien and I saw that, hap- that the little alien come out of his body, I was like, <laughs> whatever, I could do that. I probably already had one of those, and it was killed off by some other disease that I have. But pay, I want to talk about patience. Patience here, I think, and talking to my mom about this, my mom is not up on the news. She doesn't really follow stuff. She's not, you know, doesn't see the militias taking over state capitals and acting like idiots and all that. But I told her, I said, I don't feel like my liberty's been infringed upon. I don't feel inconvenienced really in that way. Now, I'm fortunate because I work from home and I have for a long, long time and I'm a self starter. I've got a mountain of things to, to do and accomplish. So, I always have a target in front of me all day, every day, and I get that. And if you're an office person who worked in office and you don't have that, I'm sure the transition has been challenging. But we're talking about patience. I've been alive for 51 years, and this is the first time I've ever been in this situation. So I kind of look at it like, holy shit, I've been so lucky to not have been in this situation before. And again, I was sick for five and a half years, six years. Um, i it's not like I haven't had challenges in my life, but I've never been to this point where I'm like, okay, I can't really go anywhere, but we've got to be patient. We have to remain calm, be smart, be positive, talk to one another, stop listening to the politicians and start listening to the scientists. I think that's a really good foundational move right there. I heard Rand Paul talking yesterday and I kept thinking, why am I listening to Rand Paul talk about a virus? Like he, you know... He's a Republican senator from Kentucky, I think. Okay, maybe you know about senator, Senate Republican-style topics for Kentucky. I would say that's probably in your wheelhouse if I had a question about that. You might be somebody I'd, I'd reach for. But why the hell would I listen to you about a pandemic? So I stop listening to politicians. Start listening to the scientists. Just get patient and know that this is not going to change for a long time. I, don't ima- I can't imagine. 20 million people out of work, 15% unemployment, major in- industries up, uh, unsettled for a long time, travel, hospitality, hotels, transportation, all these things. So I think we just all need to take a deep breath, do a little yoga, and move on. Okay, point number three is glimpse. I mentioned this in the beginning. This is a surprise bonus tip for the day that was not on my list when we started. But I think this is a good topic. So I did a book a couple of years ago, 2017, when the eclipse, total eclipse, passed over the United States. The zone of totality went over the ranch that I, my father owned when I was a kid, and I went back to see my dad's ranch partner and his family. My sister flew to Denver. I picked her up. We got in my truck. We drove up to southeastern Wyoming. I did some projects. I did a lot of writing. I took... Uh, old photographs of myself in the time of when I lived in Wyoming as a kid. I took pictures from my parents going back to the 60s and 70s of them deer hunting in Arizona, hunting in Wyoming, which is where they met my dad's eventual ranch partner. He showed me the actual physical location in Seville Canyon outside of Wheatland, Wyoming, where he had met my parents for the first time, and I had never been there, and I made a landscape photograph of that. Not a particularly good one, but you know, just a picture of that location. I had, I did not know. I'd driven by it many times and didn't know that was where they met. I also took the notebooks that they forced me to keep as a kid when they would drop me in the pastures. When they drop, like say, a, a bull out in the pasture to uh, impregnate the cows, and I had to keep a little notebook and I had to watch the bull and then I had to write down which cows he tried to breed. And like, they, I had a, like a rifle and a bag of food and they would drop me in the middle of nowhere. Like I didn't even have a raincoat. Now that I think back on it. And this was at 8,000 feet in the mountains. You know, there were no bears or mountain lions out in the plains, but they sure were very, very close distance away up in the mountains. But it was really funny. We laugh about all this stuff now. But my point is I took all of these things and I drove up there 2017. I did a whole new round of photographs. I did a whole new round of writing. I did, I broke the book into chapters. The colors of the chapter heads are the University of Wyoming colors, which is yellow and brown as a kid those colors were front and center in our lives because Laramie was the closest town. Um, A friend of my mom's from childhood lived in Laramie. We would go into town every few weeks um, and buy Jolly Ranchers. That's what I remembered. Oh, my mom would get us Jolly Ranchers. That was a huge deal. And, you know, we lived way outside of town. Uh, There was, when we first moved there, we had no telephone. We had a radio phone. That part of my life was incredibly important to me, and that's why I made the book. And the book is called Glimpse. And so it's, the book ends with the eclipse, and it starts with our history. And I have pictures of our house. I have pictures of us as children. I have pictures, again, of my parents going back to the 60s. I wrote a long forward for the book. I wrote a 5,000-word essay about my father called The Bird Hunter, which was a CB radio handle, and which is a one chapter of a 10-chapter book of 5,000-word essays about my father that I'm in the process of writing. This is a wonderful use of blurb. This is a wonderful use of any book platform that allows you to print a single copy of anything. This was like a family album on steroids. It looks amazing. People, when they see this book, ask to buy it. And it's about my family. It's not about anybody else. This was not intended for public consumption. This was intended, I made two copies of it total. I did a lay flat copy and a regular copy. I gave one copy to my mom. I probably should make a copy for my dad's ranch partner. They were very instrumental in me making this book. Maybe I sent him one. I can't remember now, but I should. But to me, it was, I just saw this book the other day. I was doing a webinar or something and I had to dig it out and I looked at it and I was like, this is really good. This is not, you know, design wise. No, it's not great. Editing wise, no, it's not great. But as a family album, it is unbelievable, because so many of us have hard drives and we have boxes of prints and we have you know all kinds of stuff that may or may not survive. This is a great thing to do. So think about it. I did an eight by ten portrait book because I really love that format and size and price point. The lay flats are expensive, but they're worth it. Um, and even if you don't want to do lay flat, you can just do a regular one with with standard paper, and it looks, in, it looks really good. And it felt good to sort of complete that circle, although my sister and I are planning a return trip to Wyoming this summer, although that's not looking likely. Okay, point number four, and I'm going to repeat this from now until the end of time. When I had mentioned this before, when I'm wrong, I always admit when I'm wrong. I do. I don't really care what the repercussions are. If I'm wrong, I'll admit when I'm wrong. I was wrong about YouTube and the softcore porn thing right and i know that hopefully some of you are laughing right now because when i was like oh everyone says youtube uses softcore porn to sell things and i'm like it's not that bad and then i realized after listing no more than 500 industries that use softcore porn to sell on youtube i was like yeah uh, i was wrong everything is better with softcore porn and everything is being sold with softcore porn and now we've reached another uh level i think and i have i have a suggestion for youtubers so I was talking about last week where if you throw in a tragedy on top of anything, anything, it could be like, you know, buying flowers. And it's like, oh, almost hit by a car, buying flowers. And then you have your girlfriend in a thong on the cover with a frowny face acting like, you know, she's about to get hit by a car. Then, you know, the the legions, the... Tens of millions of horny old men sitting around see the thumbnail and they go, oh, my God, it's a woman in a thong, and they don't really notice that it's about buying flowers or they don't notice that you're faking being hit by a car to get people there. It works. People go. I mean, that's the predominant user group on YouTube is that middle, lonely, middle-aged guy at home, and he's looking for that thong, right? That's the key. So I think after last week, as I noticed something, we now have something in the U.S. called the murder hornet, which is definitely the coolest name of any animal I've ever heard. The murder hornet. Apparently, it comes from Asia, and apparently, they don't dick around. Like, when they bite you, it's kind of—it's it's not just painful. You feel like, okay, I think I'm about to get murdered kind of thing. So, murder hornets are here. Lucky us. Maybe they'll fight with the killer bees, and we'll have a, a MMA fight. But YouTubers are using the murder hornet as a selling tool. Okay, let me just repeat that. They're using— the murder hornet as a selling tool, because the second murder hornet was here, these crowd of YouTubers said, oh, I'll go try to find them and get stung and then make a film and I'll get subscribers, right? Because YouTubers will do anything. And so in that theme, I have a suggestion for YouTubers, because we know now beyond the shadow of a doubt that disaster and mutilations and things like that are good for subscriptions. And whatever's good for subscriptions is good for us. My suggestion is the amputation. And I'm suggesting to most popular YouTubers that if you really wanna bump that sub list, if you want those sub numbers up and you want those likes up, you should think about an amputation. And I'm thinking a double amputation would be a great place to start. Maybe your arms. I'm no expert on amputations, but I'm thinking a double arm amputation might be good for all of us and it will probably spike your subs at least initially and i just wanted to throw it out there as a suggestion for you out there you youtubers who um who've left everything else behind your soul and common decency to go for those subs so just an idea just a thought okay moving on point number five i want to talk about photo editors and this came up recently it's come up many many times over the last decade and it's come up now that I've been on YouTube because I'm dealing with a crowd of photographers that I typically would not deal with. I've spent most of my time in the photography industry, if you will, and not so much or ever with the online photo community. There has been a little bit of that with Blurb over the last decade, but in me personally, I don't—I never really had any relationship with that crowd until getting on YouTube as of late. But there's a, a incredible misconception about editing. And a lot of people working in digital photography in the digital space just simply do not know how to edit. They've never edited their work. You know, they'll they'll shoot a thousand images and cut it to 500 and say they've done an edit, right? That's not editing. It's not remote, remotely close to editing. I've seen this in my workshop students over the years that have an incredibly difficult time. They go out in the field and amass way too many images. They're just constantly hitting that shutter button for no reason, and it kind of, maybe someone's told them to do that, or they feel like that's progress. And then they come back and they're looking at thumbnails on a, on a laptop and they just can't put the time in to do the edit. It's agonizing. That is not a fun process. We've all been there. We've all done shoots where you're staring at thousands of images and you're like, oh God, I'd rather like eat a light bulb. I'd rather jump off a, a, into a dry pool than, than basically have to do this. That's where we're at. But when I came up in photography, so I started shooting assignments in the late 80s. And then by 93, I had an inter- I'd gone through school, had an internship um, at the newspaper, and the newspaper was the first time that I worked with a photo editor on a daily basis. So let me explain this. I would get assignments. I'd go into the paper in the morning. There'd be a basket with my name on it, and the thing would have two, three, four pieces of paper in it. Each one was an assignment with an address, a basic gist what they were looking for, who the writer was, who the assignment editor was, who the assistant managing editor was, blah, blah, blah. The hierarchy, the chain of command, the time of the assignment, you know, how long, where it was. And it was like, there was no GPS. So I had a Thomas street guide. You'd start doing the research of how to get there, blah, blah, blah. So I would do these things. But then every day when I got back to the paper, the photo editor was right there. And he was a guy named Mike Spector, And Spectre, and there were more than one photo editor, if I remember correctly, but Spectre was the head photography editor for the paper. And especially as an intern, they were there, right? When you turned that work in, there was somebody looking at it and telling you, this is good, this is bad. You should have thought about this. Did you ever think about this? Did you think about moving here? What do you think this lacks? What is good? Why does this work? This was a daily relationship. You had somebody who looked at photographs on a daily basis for years, for decades, That is all they did. They were not, Mike Spector was a shooter, I think, at one point. But for whatever, how many years, he'd been a photo editor. When I left the newspaper and worked with other newspapers and when I worked with magazines and I did assignments, they had magazine photo editors. You worked with that photo editor all the time. These people were legends. They were legendary in terms of, how many images they looked at on a daily basis. They could consume more pictures than you and I combined, and they could make sense. They could put them, they could edit, they could sequence. They knew what was strong. They knew what to lead with. It was was a complete skill. When the internet arrived, you started to see the demise of the photo editor because the internet obliterated the quality bar. Now it was about content. It was about filling a massive pipeline for content, and nobody wanted to pay for photo editors. Many of the good ones got laid off, many of them got fired, many of them aged out, and they simply were not replaced. There are still photo editors working for sure, but not at the level they were, and many of the ones working today, in my experience, are just not very good. They're not skilled, they don't have the training, they don't have the time, they have all the attitude and all the ego, but they don't have the goods when it comes to making an edit. So it's just something a lot of modern photographers don't know about and when and they go to make books like a lot of people reach out to me and say "Hey, i'm making a book for the first time and i'm having trouble with the edit and i just want people to know that having trouble with the edit is completely normal most of us are not great about editing our own work and that is why we go out and we hire photo editors so for example a couple years ago we did this really remarkable project called the lost Rolls" with a war photographer named ron haviv And if you don't know Ron, he's one of the founders of the Seven Agency, which is Roman numeral seven, and they're one of the best photo agencies in the world. And when we decided to do this book, the very first thing that Ron did was hire an editor and a designer. So here's a guy who's been a photographer for whatever, 35 years, who has multiple traditionally published books to his name. Very successful, by the way, in terms of book sales, 10 years covering the Balkan War You know, just remarkable photographer, remarkable career, has made two images that have literally changed the course of the world, which is a movie that I think is coming out relatively soon, a documentary about this. But the first thing he did when we decided to do the book was he hired an editor and he hired a designer. And I was like, wow. And to me, that was the sign of a professional. That was someone who said, look, I'm pretty, probably pretty good at editing my own stuff, but these guys are better. And this is what they do. And this frees me up to do other things because I'm gonna pay them to do what they do really well. And that's what they do. So think about editors. If you're gonna do a book or something serious that you wanna put out into the world, hiring an editor is gonna be a good thing. Okay, I talked about this in a film I made a couple of weeks ago, and I cannot believe how much feedback I've gotten about this. And I've gotten feedback from really good photographers. Yesterday, two photographers reached out to me that are way better than I'll ever be long-term professionals who said, this is a very interesting way that you're describing this work. And uh, what I was talking about was attached versus detached stories. And what it reminded me of, and, and, uh, was, and somehow this got sort of morphed into a different topic, which was about attached versus detached stories. And this is a bit unfair what I'm about to say, but I just wanted to try to paint it in a way is, I'm, I've been a fan of, of attached photography. And what I would call attached photo stories are people like, for example, Ron Haviv. Ron covered the Balkans for 10 years, okay? He did a book called Blood and Honey. If you can get a copy of this book, get it. You cannot look at that book and miss how connected to that story he was. To the people in the Balkans, Sarajevo, years, 10 years covering the war. That book is a testament to how connected and attached he was to the project. That is a remarkable—it's one of the best modern era war books you're ever going to see because it's not just a war book. It's a complete picture of what that, the war in the Balkans was about. Although we're, there's a, a subset of photographers that gets a lot of people copying them today, especially the hipsters, especially the hipster film community. They copy people like Robert Adams, Stephen Shore, and William Eggleston, right? If if I had a dollar for every art school I went into and saw how many students were copying those three people, I would be able to buy a mid-level Toyota Camry with leather interior, right? Maybe not a Ferrari, but I'd be able to buy a top-level, maybe an XLS Camry with leather and those red wheels, right? I would be able to get that easily because I've seen so many people copying those style photographers, and I get it because it's a different way of working. I don't see the same attachment that I do. So the, the people that I was following when I came up that put the hooks in me, the first photographer was Larry Burroughs from Vietnam. The Englishman who covered Vietnam was a super respected guy. Yankee Papa 13 was the um, helicopter gun story that he did for Life Magazine. There's so much stuff he did. That's the guy that put the hooks in me. And then it was people like Gene Smith, Sebastian Salgado, and Maggie Stieber, who, when I was going to, was a freshman at UT Austin, she taught a class there and she had done a book called Dancing on Fire about her long term work in Haiti. And I saw that work. There is imp- it is impossible to look at Gene Smith, Salgado, or Steber and not realize how attached to the story they were. I think Maggie speaks Creole. Okay. So she'd spent enough time in Haiti to learn Creole. That's like astounding to me. Salgado, we all know, worked in 10-year increments on projects, very much involved with the people in the photographs. And same with Gene Smith. He was fanatical. Smith, you know, was was probably the single most fanatical documentary photographer to ever walk the face of the earth. And they these were the people that I looked at and said, I want to do that kind of work. Some of these other photographers... I just don't see they never I I kind of felt like there was and even though they're wildly successful and I'm not knocking the quality of their work they all did legendary work that deserves recognition but to me it was not the kind of work that I was after I just didn't see the same I don't know what it was and and I'm sure that there's 50 other people out there that I went to school with that all said well I don't want to do what Gene Smith and Salgado did I want to do what you know William Eggleston did and so I get it. And and Shore and Eggleston and Adams made the jump to the fine art world whereas some of the folks like Smith and Salgado and Stebert would have a much much more a much harder time making that jump because they made reality-based photography and reality-based photography has never had the same success in the art world as conceptual. So and that's still true to this day. And to me it was like if I got into a story, I didn't want to ride on the bench, right? I wanted to get all into the story. I still feel the same way. I still feel that I, I have to get involved or I'm not going to bother. You can't—this is another, another twisted way of looking at it. I've seen hipster film photographers listening to, to, iPod, to their iPod while they're shooting. While someone's doing a film, they have music on in their headphones— And to me, that's a telltale sign of a detached project. If you're listening to music in the midst of doing your project, I think it's kind of detached. And again, that may be what gets you up in the morning. And if it is, more power to you, but it doesn't float my boat. So just want to pass that on. Number seven, point number seven, out of right field. Renewable energy is not going to save the United States. It's not. There's so much data out there that supports it. There's so many issues with renewable energy. And by the way... I am a huge fan of renewable energy. I would love nothing more than for renewable energy to save the United States of America and the world itself, but it ain't happening in, under the current structure, right? There's too many log jams. There's too many logistical issues. Solar farms are not probably going to be the thing that solves anything for us. They're too complicated, take too much land. It's too hard to get the energy from the farm back into the city. There's all kinds of logistical issues. Um, wind turbines, you know, they kill about six to 10,000, Birds of prey every year, um, even though um, you know animals kill way more birds than that. But still, there's just a lot of like things that aren't quite right. And so, a couple of things have happened in the last week that I found encouraging, at least for for some here in the U.S. and some for the other parts of the world. And I'm just thinking to myself, okay, renewable energy is not going to save us here. The oil and gas industry is about to receive a bailout of epic, epic proportion. And by the way. The politicians on both sides of the aisle are going to line their pockets with that bailout. There will be so many hidden levels of that bailout money that will make their way back to these politicians that they are going to be unwinding this for decades. I will be dead before all of these things get wound out. If you ever thought for a moment that the federal government in the United States was here to, was in, was here to work in your support as an American citizen— when we are in the middle of a global pandemic and the financial bailout is filled with kickbacks, it is evidence that we will never learn our lesson, that the corruption level is systemic, it's endemic. Uh, it reaches all, all aspects of our government, our, our uh, justice department, our financial system. It's bad. Like we, There is no hiding from it. In fact, they don't even have to hide. They brag about it. They talk about how they're, they're doing this and there's absolutely nothing we can do. And so renewables come along, and I'm doing a little research on renewables, and I'm like, okay, this is not looking trending right for the future. But two things happened. Seattle decided to close, the city of Seattle, Washington, decided to close 20 miles of roads permanently for cyclists and pedestrians. So 20 miles, that's nothing. That is like not even a drop in the bucket. That's not even the drop, the drop of oil that spills out of your transmission. But it's, it's a statement. It's saying we need to re- rethink some things. It's like the city of Portland making a decision 30 years ago. We do not want to be Southern California. We do not want the sprawl. We do not want the freeways. We want to build sort of micro cities within the city so that people don't need to travel downtown. And if they do need to travel downtown, we want light rail. We want buses. We want bike lanes, right? Now, the redneck portion of America looks and says, you all are socialists. You're communists, man. You know, I want my my fossil fuel. And that accent is dead on, by the way. I've talked to that guy a thousand times. I had some uh, I had a 30 pack of Miller Lite with him once. So that that's true. So Seattle makes a statement. Hey, we're going to this is, you know, we closed this because of the pandemic, but we're looking at the positive benefits of this and we're thinking we need to be doing this in the future. Let's just close it permanently. The UK decided to invest 2 billion dollars in cycling infrastructure. That's pretty freaking remarkable. Now, when I think of the UK for whatever reason and you Brits out there and your jellied eels, God knows why you eat those. Please don't eat Jelly Deals anymore. There's no way to disguise how disgusting they are. And if you do eat Jelly Deals, please write in the comments below because I want to talk to you. I've seen a Jelly Deal, and if I was dying, I don't think I would want to eat that. Now, there's a lot of stuff you make that I like. And I love pub food, by the way. I probably wouldn't eat that much of it now because my diet's very different. But in the past, I put a beat down on some pub food all over the UK. But the UK, when I think of the UK... And I can't explain this entirely. And I have tons of friends in the UK, and they're all eloquent, sophisticated, well-educated, and intelligent, and I hate all of them because I'm jealous. But when I think about the UK, I always think about World War II. I think about tweed jackets and cigarettes and bicycles. And I don't know why that is. Maybe it's a romantic version of the UK – but I, I like to think about the UK in that, in that way. And so when I hear that they've invested $2 billion in cycling infrastructure, I think tweed, cigarettes, and, and bike lanes. And I'm like, God, they did it again. They're more sophisticated than we are. The fact that they can even do this, the fact that they can even have a conversation about it tells you how much further along they are than we are. Because here, you can't even have the conversation. Can you imagine anyone in the Senate Or the Congress, any of these people, male, female, Republican, Democrats, any of these people having a conversation about bicycling infrastructure in America. No, they're bought and paid for. There's no possible way because oil and gas and the auto industry are the two most powerful lobbies out there and they dominate. They pay and control all of these people and they have for decades. So, to get 2 billion in cycling infrastructure here which by the way would get you nowhere because of the bureaucracy that's put in place by things like insurance policies at the local state and federal level you've got all the bureaucracy in the in the city governments in the state governments in the federal government it's all designed to never get anything done but i was very happy to see the uk take a step i was very happy to see seattle take a step and look when i was making the joke about the redneck earlier and talking about you can't even have the conversation Literally, it's true. I talked to someone a few months ago who was miserable, and I was trying to help him, give him suggestions. They had reached out to me and said, you know, what do you think I should do? And this is a very conservative right-wing Republican person. And, um, and again, I have tons of friends who are right-wing Republican people. I don't draw a line in the sand. I don't think that gets us anywhere. I can sit and have a conversation with a Republican just as easily as I can with a Democrat. Not to say that I'm going to agree with either side entirely, but I need to have those conversations. We all do. We can't draw a line in the sand. We can't get entrenched. We can't think our party doesn't smell. They do. So this person said to me, this person was living in a super hot climate, just a miserably hot climate here in the U.S., hated the hot weather. And said to me, you know, what do you think I should do? And I said, look, you are tailor made for Portland, Oregon, or Seattle, Washington. In terms of weather wise, g- this was pre pandemic, job opportunities, design of the city, the landscape. I'm like, you should go, just go and take a look, just explore. Person literally says to me, without skipping a beat, I could never go there, it's too liberal. And I thought, Wow. That kind of sums up. Now, this person had never been to either city. So never been, never done any research, but was watching Fox News. Fox News said, oh, those are socialist locations, you know, communist, socialist. Up, oh, those are terrible, you know. So this person is now still stuck in this super hot climate, miserable and afraid to go reach out because of the political spectrum of, and that's when I said earlier that even to have the conversation about investing in bicycling infrastructure here is impossible. It's an impossibility because we've been so radicalized by by politics. So way to go Seattle, and way to go UK. I wish the, the governor here in New Mexico would make a stand, but we are such a poor state, it would be very tricky. Albuquerque, in my opinion, has is sitting on the edge of a precipice in a good way. Albuquerque is holding the cards to creating the city of the future. Um, And you might think that's surprising because of the lack of water in Albuquerque, and that is a huge issue. And there's all kinds of shenanigans going on with water issues and pollution and stuff in New Mexico and Albuquerque. But because of that, that's an opportunity to say, we are the bellwether for climate change. We already have water issues. If we can solve it, than anybody else can too. And also because we're poor, it's a poor state. So if in Albuquerque, the way that it's laid out, there's room for things like bicycling infrastructure. So if they can get cut through the bureaucracy and implement some of these plans, they have hope. Santa Fe being 415 years old, the streets here are so narrow, uh, it would be almost impossible, I think, to develop cycling infrastructure here. But again, it's tiny and there's tons of hike uh, trails and, and places for you to ride your bike without being on the road. So we're still doing pretty good. Okay, moving on, point number eight. I'm i I'm, I'm, like I'm feeling like I just came out in round three, and I'm about ready to knock out my opponent, right? I've got him on the ropes. He's bleeding from the nose. I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled about that, and I'm, I'm ready to go in for the kill. I've got more points, and I feel fantastic for some reason. I am reading a wonderful book right now called My Salinger Year. And let me see who this is written by. I'll make sure I got the title exactly right. It's on my Kindle. I love this book. And it's written by oh god I think I just broke my Kindle no nope. my Kindle is on the last leg what a shock Dan no you with electronics my Salinger year and this is um this is by Joanna Rakoff a Rakoff R A K O F F it's got two hundred and three four star reviews uh, this is a wonderful book right it's about a woman who's working in a, in the literary industry in New York City in nineteen ninety six uh, it's fantastic. And um, J.D. Salinger obviously wrote *Catcher in the Rye*. He is a, a a very peculiar, unique figure in literature in terms of his lifestyle, um, his reclusiveness, the success of his books, etc. This book is is a blast. I'm I'm probably halfway through and I'm already re- regretting that it's going to end at some point. So um, I already forgot her name. I'm sorry, Rebecca Rakoff. Rakoff, you did a good job, and um, you deserve a five star review in my opinion. So there was a quote in the book that really stuck out at me. And this speaks to something we talked about last week, which is the purity of art and photography and the fallacy of what that is once you become a commercial entity. Someone is paying for everything that you're doing along the way, whether it's you or it's someone else. I was watching a free diving film yesterday and there was more blatant brand and product placement than I could possibly imagine. In the first two minutes of the film, It was watches and underwear and spear guns and wetsuits and boats and like every single brand put foot and center. And you know what? I said, I don't give a shit. I want to see this guy free dive in, uh, you know, for fish. This is really interesting to me. I understand someone's paying for him to be out there. I have no problem with that. That's how the world works. So there was a quote in this book that says, writing makes you a writer. If you get up every morning and write, then you're a writer. Publishing doesn't make you a writer. That's just commerce. That to me is a wonderful quote and something that gets so lost in the era of popularity where everybody thinks they need to be a pro. Stephen King in his book on writing, which every single one of you people listening to this podcast should stop what you're doing right now and buy this book. Stephen King on writing. It's a wonderful book. Let me read the quote again. Writing makes you a writer. If you get up every morning and write, then you're a writer. Publishing doesn't make you a writer. That's just commerce. The same applies to art. The same applies to photography. The second you go into that commercial space, you're compromised. That's just, I don't know anyone who's not compromised that's in that space. Everyone is. Whether you're a brand ambassador, look at me. I'm I'm the creative evangelist for Blurb. You could say I'm totally compromised. I'm getting ready, potentially, to do a podcast with the folks— um, there's a Fujicast podcast, the guys from the UK, who of course are eloquent and smart and funny. I hate them. They reached out and said, hey, maybe we could have a talk. I said, absolutely. Maybe I'm compromised. I don't know. So there's a, this brought up a, a memory to me. Um, and I'm probably going to get these names wrong and the, the specific data wrong, but I know I'm right on the point because I remember it so clearly from the time. There was a, back in, the, in 1996, also in 96. There was the end of apartheid in South Africa, and I remember because I was working at the paper in Arizona, I was freelancing, and I was, oh, I had a conversation with the same guy I mentioned earlier, Mike Spector. I had a conversation in the elevator in the building, and I was on the fence about what I was doing with my life and being at the paper and trying to get a staff job and not just be a freelancer, and Spector said something to me in the elevator along the lines of, you've got way more on in your future than this paper. And I remember being sort of like freaked out by that. Was that a good thing or a bad thing? But I think what he was paying me was a compliment and saying, dude, you're destined for something more. What that is, I don't know. And Inspector looked at me and said, just go, just go to Africa. Like end of apartheid is happening, whatever. And I didn't go because I chickened out. I'm a wuss. But what happened is there was a moment that happened that was really sad and tragic. There were some Afrikaners who were caught in a neighborhood in a Mercedes Benz in their khaki shorts and shirts, you know, that look beards, Afrikaans. And they, I think that's how you pronounce it, afrikaners or Afrikaans, white South Africans. And they got caught in this neighborhood. They were dragged out of their car and they were machine gunned. And there were three or four photographers standing right there making photographs of this entire scenario. The car getting pulled over, the guys getting pulled out, them on their knees with their hands in their air begging for their life. And then boom, they get machine gunned. So when the photographers who were there were interviewed afterwards, They said exactly what you think they would have said. Oh, well, we thought we could make a difference. Oh, we didn't want to interfere. You know, blah, blah, blah. The same standard routine stuff that everyone says. It's a press release, right? It's like the statement you're supposed to make. I feel terrible. I didn't want to get involved. I didn't think I could stop it. My job's to shoot. You know, the greatest line in history from under fire. I don't take sides. I take pictures. That kind of thing. But there was one photographer who was not there who is a damn good photographer, who has been a damn good photographer for a long, long time. And he was interviewed. And for I don't know why he wasn't there, but he wasn't there. And they said, how did you feel about that? And he goes, I was pissed because I knew how much money I could make from that photograph. And he was castigated, right? Everyone was just up in arms about this response of how callous, how jaded, how awful. And I remember thinking, I re- exactly when I saw that quote, I said that's the only honest guy there because all of them were thinking the same thing and they didn't have the cojones to come out publicly and admit it. That's the commerce of the creative world. That's everyone is compromised. And if you're living in a in a fantasy world that this that work and opportunity comes from out of the blue in this pure space of pure light, samadhi. Um, you are sorely mistaken because that is not how it works, so you just better get ready. okay. Another thing I learned from this this uh, literary book, the um, Salinger yearbook, which i 'd already known because i 'd lived through it, but it brought up something that I thought was incredibly important, and it also speaks to the division in America again, and also the naive and, and poor edu- naivete and the poor education of Americans. So there was a—the friend of an author in this book is works for a textbook company, and she's working on a textbook about Texas, right? Well, I happened to go to public school in Texas from fifth grade through high school, and I actually went to UT Austin. I went to college in Texas as well. So elementary school and then to middle school. My middle school was insanely violent, tons of gangs, fights, teachers getting beat up, drugs, everything. It was awesome. I loved it. That's probably why I want to be a photojournalist. And there was no boring days there. Um, I got suspended once, almost got licks once. I thought my dad was going to beat up the vice principal. It's a whole nother story. Dad had my back. It was amazing, by the way. My dad leaned over his desk. My dad drove me to the school, went past the secretary, and she was going, sir, sir, you can't go in there, just like in the movies. And my dad leans over the desk of the vice principal and goes, you touch my son, I come back and I touch you. And that guy was like, oh, he's fine. He's not suspended no licks, whatever. And when I say licks, by the way, you used to get punishment. They would bend you over a table and hit you with a wooden rod. I'm not joking. People think I'm joking about that. I'm not joking. Licks. It was kind of funny because everybody tended to get them at some point. And uh, I was supposed to get them for something I didn't do. And my dad said, did you do it? He goes, I'm going to ask you one time. Did you do it? I go, no. He goes, get in the car. And that's how the whole thing unfolded. It was awesome. But anyway, I was in high school, in, in history class, and I remember seeing the chapter on Islam. It wasn't a chapter. It was a paragraph on Islam, and it had a picture of a Mujahideen with an AK-47, and I remember thinking, I don't think that sums up the whole Islamic religion. I'm pretty sure that that's kind of misguided, and the point is that these states are so powerful that they can rewrite the history books in whatever way they want. And Texas rewrites it in a conservative, Christian, right-wing way. They eliminate chapters on civil rights. They eliminate chapters on the Native Americans. They eliminate everything, and then they paint this fake history. And I don't know about you, but when I was in public school from elementary to high school, I was a complete idiot, complete and total idiot. I did whatever the minimum was required of me. So when I looked at the picture of the Mujahideen and the AK and said, I don't think this is representative of of Islam, did I go out and do any research? No, I went and had cherry sours and Dr. Pepper for lunch, got wired, and then probably got in a fight, right? That's what happens. It was school. It was about fighting. It was about territory and turf and um, pencil fighting and watching teachers get beaten, beaten up. I didn't have time to research Islam. But it's true, and I think our education system here is so bad and so awful in so many ways and because of the po- the politics again they're able to go in and say look we're buying this amount of books from you you got to print what we want you to print we are going to re- we're going to have revisionist history we're going to rewrite what we want to fit our political angle and then we're going to basically indoctrinate all of the public school kids into thinking that this is an actual history so it's not it sucks and we should uh, not allow that moving on two last points 1996 was the tipping point uh, when I saw that year in the in the book, I was very intrigued because 1996 was interesting, and uh, this was the year before the first real digital cameras came along. And there was the internet was not a huge part of my life at that time. Texting was not a huge part. The mobile phone was not a huge part. Everything it was it, we we, just, we flipped right, and then all of a sudden it was internet everything, texting everything, cell phones everything, and. It started. It started to destroy our culture, our language, our species, and our planet. And I'm just curious out there: how many of you look back on this time and say, "Wow, it was such a horrible time." You know, we didn't have texting and a mobile phone, and my life was just incomplete. And it's weird because I kind of think that at some point we have to we have to transfer. I can't say back. We've got to transfer in a new direction because this is obviously not helping us. And we look at Facebook and you know the rise of Trump and Facebook being hugely responsible for Trump being in office, social media dominating our conversations, misinformation, micro-targeting, this whole thing. And I'm thinking, am I the only one out here that just thinks that, why why don't we all just pull the plug now? And the fact that if you came to me and said, Milner, you can never send another text and we need your mobile phone, you would have to put your hands up to your face to protect yourself from how fast my phone would come back towards your head. I would throw my computer. I would throw my phone. I would never send a text message again and be perfectly happy. Um, because i don 't look at what we had before as bad, I look at it in some ways as comical, yes, slow, yes, um and yes, not advanced in some ways, obviously advances in medicine, nanotechnology, things like that can be very, very helpful, but I think like most things, humans take, we adapt and we just we we learn to destroy ourselves with it so i 'm hoping that we flip around um and we go from we go in a good direction from there, oh so I want to talk about a little absurd thing, a little story here at the end that's absurd. And this kind of speaks to the whole art and commerce thing again, but not really. So I just want to say, this speaks to the innocence and the purity again. There was a time in my life when I was a newspaper photographer. And there was a time, a day, in the summer, in the southwestern part of the United States where there was a massive traffic accident on a highway, where there were multiple fatalities. It was bad, really bad. Like I think there were more than 10 people killed in one crash. It was on the interstate. And I was about 50 miles away in a city and I got the assignment to photograph this wreck. And I drove 100 miles an hour on the freeway, weaving in and out of traffic to go make pictures of a traffic accident so that I could tell the public to pay attention to public safety. All right, let me repeat that. I drove 100 miles an hour weaving in and out of traffic to get to a traffic accident with multiple fatalities so that I could take pictures of those multiple fatalities to then show the public to remind them to be safe when they were driving. Yeah, it's called hypocrisy. And I did it over and over and over again. I did the exact same thing to get to a train wreck. And the editor was like, I don't give a shit how fast you have to go. You get there now. It was a race. Like I'm doing 100 miles an hour in a four-wheel drive pickup, pounding on the roof with my right hand because I'm so stressed out. My pager's going off with 911 pages nonstop. My piece of crap World War II cell phone doesn't work. I'm isolated. I'm going 100 miles an hour. I probably had no seatbelt on so that I can go out and tell people how important public safety is. So we all do idiotic things. We all do stupid things. We're all compromised to some degree. Um, And I think this reminds me, I started making YouTube films about six months ago. The very first YouTube film I made, I compromised myself. I do not want to film myself. I don't want to be on camera. I don't want to be a YouTube star. I don't want to be the center of attention. But I said to myself, I've been tasked with this assignment. I've got to film myself. So I compromised myself from the first moment I made a YouTube film. I don't really know any way around it. Um, I've taken money from all kinds of unsavory businesses over the years for making pictures, all kinds of unsavory people. I've taken money from what I would guess would be, uh, in fact, well, I don't know. I can't even say this. I probably shouldn't say this online, so I'm not going to say it online. I've taken money from some unsavory people and businesses. Let me just put it that way. I didn't necessarily know it at the time, but looking back on it now, I'm pretty damn sure what, who they were and what they were. I took the money. I'm like, I need the money. I need the assignments. This is this is fun. I'm gonna like this. I'm gonna do it anyway. So, it's weird. It's I'm not saying compromise yourself. Obviously not. That's not not good. You have to do whatever your morals and your ethics are telling you to do. And a lot of these things, if it came to me now, I would simply not even bother to return the email or the call. Um, but. Again, this idea of purity and innocence that somehow there's no commercial filter behind what we're doing and what we're putting out. I just think we're so past it. And look, I would love nothing else for there to be a purity and a way of doing things that weren't this way. But I I certainly don't see it now, especially now during the pandemic and what we're going to have as a society when we come out of this. I don't know. Maybe this is an opportunity to, to right the ship. Maybe it's an opportunity to do something different. I just don't know if we can get enough people in mass. And I certainly know with certainty the government has no interest in changing. They're making too much money as it is. They're happy to, the people who are in power are happy to be there and they will do anything to keep it. So I don't imagine this changing anytime soon. Um, the way around this is to just work on your own, you know, is to just do the work that you want not make it a commercial thing. Put your work in print if you want to, but don't necessarily go after a publishing deal. Do a zine, do a magazine, do a book, put it out. But if you're going to do anything that goes out on scale, where you have a mission, a purpose, you have an intent to create something or build something bigger than yourself, that is where the compromise will begin. And what you're looking for is the best possible relationship with the least amount of compromise where you have a, a full dis, a full seat at the table, where your opinion is valued, where you can say, this is right, this is wrong. I believe in this. I don't believe in this. I think we can do this, but not this. And you work together as a team to get there. And when you're afforded these, uh, these abilities and these opportunities, it is a wonderful thing. And I guess what we have to do is when we're not afforded those opportunities, we have to go back in the other direction and find another way. So that is it. That is my... Uh, that's my podcast for the day, for the week. I can see my battery light flashing at me. These are recycled batteries, by the way. I love recyclable batteries. I love everything. I love solar. I love recycled batteries. I love anything that's rechargeable. Um, I love that stuff. I love clothing that lasts a lifetime. I love shoes that last a lifetime. I love, I have a titanium bicycle because titanium doesn't rust. It's super strong, could last for the rest of my life. By the way, I'm getting ready to do a film about my bicycle. I love it so much. And I'm glad you're here. I know that many of you are stuck in some compromising circumstances right now. We're all in the middle of a pandemic. Let's talk about the PP, the double P, the P squared, which is pandemic patients. I think we would all be better off if we took a spoonful every morning, just like Ovaltine, and uh, we'd come out of this much better. So good luck out there. Any questions for me, just hit me up. And oh, yeah, don't forget to subscribe. <laughs> just kidding. See you next week.